The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. On this week's Court TV podcast, Bill Cosby was back in court this week arguing that his 2018 conviction for sexual assault should be overturned. Court TV's Julie Grant has been following the story from the start and tells us what she learned from the Pennsylvania Supreme Court appellate hearing. Cosby's lawyers argue it was unfair to allow prior bad act witnesses to testify in his trial, and they're not alone. Friend of the podcast, lawyer Michael Sterling, is here to tell me why he thinks Cosby should get another trial. This is the Court TV Podcast with Vinnie Politan. I'm Vinnie Politan. Thanks so much for downloading the podcast. And me, like millions and millions of people, I was a big Bill Cosby fan. I mean, a huge fan. Obviously, I watched the show, right? But beyond that, I mean, I, was, I had one of his comedy albums, right? Where, where comedians would do their routine and they put it on a record and you would play it on a turntable. I mean, that's how much of a fan of Bill Cosby I was. You know, I was reared on, on Fat Albert on Saturday mornings. Um, then when I got older, obviously I watched the, the, the Cosby show, which was like huge. And I was buying ugly sweaters like Cosby. It was unbelievable. I, I, I was a fan. And then then after the Cosby show, just hearing him him talk and, and from this moral high ground, you know, I, I tended to respect him. And I was like, wow, is it, you know, this is a guy who's got it together. That's all out the door now. I'm sorry, but, you know, I've, I've, I've followed his legal troubles. He's now in prison. I mean, you're talking about accuser after accuser after accuser with very similar stories, and he's now uh, been convicted. And I'm not a fan anymore. I'll admit it, I'm not a fan. I, I, after what I, I can't be a fan anymore. But, you know, it is what it is. But for Bill Cosby, he now has another opportunity to, uh, from his perspective, set the record straight as he has an appeal in front of the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania, all relative to his criminal conviction. So to, to get a, a grasp on what this is all about and, and what the issues are and, and whether or not he's got a chance and what he has to prove, etc., we need someone who knows Pennsylvania law, number one, someone who has covered this story from the beginning. So the great news is we have someone in-house right here at Court TV who knows all of this. Let me bring onto the podcast for the first time, believe it or not, Court TV anchor Julie Grant. Julie, uh, thanks so much. Hey, Vinny. Thanks for having me. Great to be on the podcast. All right. People who don't know your history, you were a prosecutor in the great Commonwealth, not state, Very but good. Commonwealth <laughs> of Pennsylvania. See, I got that right. Uh, so explain for us, number one, what exactly are the, is, is the basis of Bill Cosby's appeal in front of the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania? Sure. So it's based on two separate issues. Um, the first issue is with prior bad act witnesses. The rules of evidence in PA, it's 404B is the exact rule. So sometimes you might hear them called 404B witnesses or PBA, in short for prior bad act. Or when we covered the Weinstein trial in New York, they were called Molyneux witnesses. But essentially, this is where character evidence comes in 
for a non-character purpose. The rules of evidence carve out exceptions where generally we can't just introduce character evidence, right? We can't say somebody was a thief once, so they're always a thief, that's propensity evidence. No, but if you have a specific exception, and here in Bill Cosby's case, the prosecution used two different exceptions to get into evidence the testimony of other accusers. And so one of them was they said there was a common scheme or plan, and we're talking about identical, nearly identical, I should say, instances of conduct and um, a common design with, with the scheme, so much so that they're so closely similar that it looks like the criminal has kind of a signature move or a signature way of carrying out the crime. So the common scheme or plan was one, and then the second one was absence of mistake. And um, this was rooted in uh, Bill Cosby's defense team always said with the accusation from victim Andrea Constand, who was the victim on the indictment that was charged, that this was conduct that was consensual. So the absence of mistake exception comes in where they're using all these other examples to say, oh, no, 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 no. There's no way um, this was a mistake here and there was consent here because guess what? This happened to all these other women in nearly identical circumstances. So that was issue number one. Issue number two dealt with the defense team saying that this case should have never been prosecuted in the first place because they said that there was this immunity agreement that was promised to Bill Cosby way back when in 2004, when the case came in by the former DA, Bruce Castor. But that agreement was never written down. It was never formalized by a court, which is the way it has to be properly done. The prosecutor can't just hand over immunity. They have to have the court sign off on that and issue that immunity and never written down, nothing like that. It was just mentioned in a press release that the office in Montgomery County, the DA's office there was making a decision not to prosecute him. And based on that, uh, Bill Cosby saying he relied to his detriment on that promise. He talked in a civil deposition, talked about giving women quaaludes in order to have sex with them. And then fast forward years later, when a new DA is in office, the fall of 2015, new DA, Kevin Steele, takes over and files charges just before the statute of limitations expired against Bill, or was set to expire, I should say, against Bill Cosby. So those are the two. And relying, and relying in part on those statements made by Cosby as newfound evidence. Okay. So we've got the two issues. We've got all these other women who say, okay, he did the same thing to me in the, the same way to a certain extent, right? It's, it's, it's the use of some sort of a pill, whether it's a quaalude or something else, to immobilize, knock these women out, and then uh, sexually assault them. Okay, how did the Supreme Court justices of Pennsylvania react today? Because sometimes during the Q&A back and forth, you can get a read on, Who's a little bit skeptical? Who's got a problem with something that happened here? Uh, how did the justices react? Well, I found them to be overall, collectively, much harder on the Commonwealth attorneys. I Ooh, really That's did. not good. That's not good for prosecutors. Right. That surprised me. And so I felt like overall, they seemed like some of the questioning was much harsher to me on the Commonwealth. But... Listening to the law, to me, it really seemed like the Commonwealth has the law on its side. And what was substantively said and the answers that were given by those attorneys to those tough questions 
really seemed to make sense and also citing precedent in the state of Pennsylvania. So they had examples and other cases that they cited and rooted in their responses. So I, I was a little surprised at how harsh some of them were, but at the end of the day, um, although the defense presentation may have been great in terms of uh, being clear or being forceful with the arguments, if the law isn't on your side, you can put on the best show in the world and still lose right. the case. Unless the Supreme Court changes the law. I mean, right, sometimes they do that. Well, and that's the problem, Vinny, is they shouldn't, right? They should, judges and justices, you know, should never legislate from the bench. And so this, this case, really, a lot is riding on this one, as you know, because we know the PA Supreme Court has struggled with this issue before, and uh, you can see that evidenced in opinion. When you say this issue, which one did, do you think they had more problems with? Oh, the, I'm the sorry. Press, the, the press. The, the, the prior bad act witnesses, right? The right. other women who testified yes. more so than the prosecutor putting out a press release saying uh, we're not going to prosecute Bill Cosby at this time. Correct. Right. And with that one, I, I really got the sense from at least some of the questioning. One of the best questions, I, I felt like it was the first one that was right out of the gate to the defense Um you know, attorney, I, I want to, I feel like you saying appellant and appellee can be a little bit confusing, but to Cosby's, you know, defense team was, well, if you're saying he detrimentally relied on this promise not to prosecute, never ever is he denied the ability to assert his Fifth Amendment privilege. Why didn't he do that? And Vinny, I kept thinking like, yes, great question, because you and I have talked about this on your Court TV live show at night many times, like he had a team of lawyers sitting there with him throughout that process during the civil deposition, and he just spilled it all without having something in writing, without something from the court, um, that's a real shame, you know, and, and, and truly, I, I feel sorry in that respect for him. If this was based on the bad advice of counsel, I, I mean, I, shame on those attorneys if they didn't go about this the proper way, shame on them, because I'm sure they were paid lots and lots and lots of money. Um, certainly doesn't excuse the predatory, and I'm talking predatory, sexually assaultive behavior that took place with him. Uh, but to that issue, the justices seemed like, look, this wasn't in, in writing. Um, and you know, one other question was uh, that was posed uh, to the, the prosecution's attorney was, well, what about the fact that things changed when the offices changed? And I thought that was a good question too that was posed by Justice Wecht. And he said that, look, if your word isn't your bond, then what message does that send? And I thought that was a really great question because when the administration was the Castor administration, Bill Cosby felt safe, no charges were coming. And then when Kevin Steele, the current DA took over and really ran on that platform, that was part of the political race in 2015, Vinny, then things changed. And I thought the response was very good from the Commonwealth's attorney. And he said, you know, in that press release, even DA Castor said, look, we will certainly revisit this issue if new information is learned. We're essentially reserving the right to revisit this. This isn't you know, an end-all be-all, so to speak. It seems more like Bill Cosby should be in court with his uh, first defense team rather right. than with the Commonwealth. I mean, right. and, 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 and it's too bad. You know, it's too bad. Sorry, but, you know, you, you said what you said. You did what you did. You didn't lie about it, and it, and it, and it is what it is. You mm -hmm. know, I, so 
as, as the justices are questioning them, though, on the prior bad act witnesses, and there were 19 women who came forward, right, who prosecutors wanted to use, the judge uh, said uh, you can use five out of eight that they said were okay, right? So yes. there, were five, there were only five out of 19 that were presented. Did any of the justices have a problem with the number of prior bad act witnesses? Well, yes. And that was where a lot of the strong questioning came that I felt like was really tough on the Commonwealth. And one of the questions raised was, why did you need five? And I remember the Chief Justice raising that question even toward the end of the Commonwealth's arguments. You know, why did you need five? And the response from them was, well, look, we needed this for, for two reasons. One, um, there, there was some, there was a delay in victim Andrea Constance reporting, and we knew that was going to be attacked. Um, and something in common with all those other women uh, that were presented, the private act witnesses, was that same delay, which isn't, it's not uncommon in, in sex assault victims. I mean, we know that it's, it's, the typical thing isn't for someone to run right to the police. It's to, you know, feel shame when they shouldn't, to maybe confide in a friend or someone, which some of them did until they you know, feel like they can come forward. And here we're talking about a guy who was perhaps the most beloved actor in comedia in America at the time. And so powerful. Powerful, right. They felt like they couldn't come forward. So that was, you know, one reason. And then two, they felt like they anticipated this attack on her credibility from the defense. And having these five other women who were testifying to nearly identical circumstances, the little blue pills to help you relax and all happening in places where no other third party could possibly come in and rescue the woman. And they all um, you recall being in a position where Cosby was in, in total control and they viewed him as someone as a mentor, someone who could help their careers. He was uh, much older than many of them. One of these women was 17 at the time. And so their response to that question about why did you need five? They said, well, look for these reasons and we're entitled to it based on the rules. And by the way, justices, there is no bright line rule in Pennsylvania that says you can only have five or you can only have two. No, and they cited cases where there were more victims that were called than, than just the five in this case. And they also said that there's no bright line rule for remoteness in time. The defense was trying to say, look, some of these instances occurred far too long in time before the incident with Andrea Constant occurred. So this makes them you know, far too removed in order to be applicable and fall into those 404B exceptions. Okay, Julie, so when, when does Cosby find out what the decision is here? Because again, I'm still a little worried here because of the tone of the, of the justices. And I say that because I'm a former prosecutor. And as I said, not a fan of Cosby anymore after what I heard. But uh, when does he find out? Right. So he will find out within 150 days, the court will issue an opinion on this. So it doesn't really narrow down an exact date for us, unfortunately, but uh, he will be in prison. He is at SCI Phoenix, which is located in Montgomery County, and he was not present today. This was all done via video conference. And of course, it's his right to be there, but um, he opted not to be there. And uh, just to make it clear, he, he won't be getting out, even if they were to, let's just say, side with the defense in this case. There's no way uh, this would be, the remedy would be another trial. It wouldn't be Bill Cosby goes free. Could or, get out on bond, though. Could get out on bond. Could get oh, out on bond. 
Maybe, um, maybe not. We'll he see. could, you know, and well, yeah, and it's one of those things. I mean, he's already been labeled a sexually violent predator. That was one of the labels that came from the judge at sentencing because of this conduct, because of the deplorable nature of this. He's a registered sex offender, and um, it's a real shame. I mean, because he he really was an icon, and um, hearing that evidence and believing, I sat in through the first trial and heard it. I mean, it. It is stomach turning, Vinny. It is truly stomach turning. And it just goes to show you that you know, actors are that. They are actors. The yep. persona that we all knew and loved. I was like you, loved him as a child. Putting on a show. Yeah. Putting on a show. Julie Grant, Court TV live anchor. Thank you so much. Uh, appreciate you joining us. And we will certainly follow up uh, within 150 days. But before that, and talk about uh, some, one of the other cases we're covering on Court TV. Thanks so much, Julie. Thanks, Vinny. It's been a pleasure. All right. You know, there are a lot of smart people out there, not just his defense team, who think that Bill Cosby didn't get a fair shake. One of those smart people is going to join us next. Attorney Michael Sterling joins the podcast when we return. For more Court TV, watch it on cable, over the air, Roku, or go to CourtTV.com and stream live gavel-to-gavel coverage. Catch up on the big moments from our current cases and relive some of Court TV's most historic trials. Court TV, your front-row seat to justice. All right, I'm a former prosecutor, but I believe firmly believe that everyone deserves a fair trial, even baby killers and rapists. They just do. It's the way our system works. It's the only way it can work because a baby killer gets a fair trial and the person who may be falsely accused, which really doesn't happen that often, folks, let's be honest, uh, that person deserves a fair trial as well. It's it's the only way. There's the presumption of innocence, everything. But at the end of the day, we've got a, a set of rules For every trial, I mean, you can't just put in anything as evidence. There are certain rules and guidelines that have been scrutinized, have been given uh, tests on whether or not they are constitutional and whether they make sense. And all this stuff is is moving and evolving. Now, in the world of these sexual assault cases, the rules are a little different. When it comes, and you heard it from Julie Grant, from it comes to these, these prior bad act witnesses. In, in murder cases and in assaults and robberies, you, you usually don't get this type of evidence in. But as we saw with Harvey Weinstein and others, uh, in these cases, it, it comes in much more often. And, it's, and it gets scrutinized. And now it's getting scrutinized by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. But the real question is, you know, did he get a fair trial? Did Bill Cosby get a fair trial? The question isn't, um, is he guilty? Is he not guilty? Did he do it? Did he not do it? Ultimately, the question for our system of justice is, did he get a fair trial? So let's bring in former federal prosecutor, great criminal defense attorney, Michael Sterling, uh, joining us. Michael, great to see you. Great to, great to be with you, Vinny. I know you're not here to uh, profess the innocence of Bill Cosby. And to me, it's, it's moot, right? It's sort of irrelevant to the discussion. Right, right, because I think what what happens in his case reverberates around other potential less high-profile criminal cases that are important to our justice system. Right, and there and there there are cases I'm sure out there, especially when it comes to sexual assault. I think more so than any case where there can be false accusations. You know, sometimes there can be false accusations that are um, motivated by money or motivated by um, some sort of spite, and it can happen. I mean, people can accuse each other of things, and these cases are tough to prove sometimes. Uh, and many times they're much more nuanced and complicated. 
Um, so in this case, okay, do you believe that Bill Cosby got a fair trial with the five women who came in? It's five out of 19, right? Let me do the math. That's like just over 25% of the women that prosecutors wanted in actually testified, Michael. But four more than the judge allowed in the first trial, Vinny. So in the first trial, if you remember, the judge allowed one prior bad act uh, witness. And then the second, and there was a hung jury. And then the second trial allowed five prior bad act witnesses. And ultimately, uh, Bill Cosby was convicted. I, I'll be honest with you, Vinny. I've never been a fan of the... Uh, exception to the uh, bad act rule, which essentially, you know, says you cannot introduce character evidence or prior bad acts to demonstrate that is a person's character or that they've acted in conformity there with something they've did before. Uh, and then they have all of these exceptions, plan, design, motive. Uh, I've never been a fan of it because I've never believed that even the most conscientious of jurors can separate it. And I think Ultimately, the rules of evidence are set up in a way, uh, at least for the most part, because you're trying to get the truth in a trial as it relates to the specific accusations and allegations against a defendant. And oftentimes we can get, you know, you know, sort of sort of caught up in our legalese because judges and lawyers are typically speaking the same language. But jurors are, are not necessarily speaking the same language as judges and lawyers. And I think sometimes we have to protect and preserve their ability to be neutral. And I think it's almost impossible. I believe this in almost every case I've tried. It's almost impossible to separate, for a juror to separate and be neutral once you hear that somebody did something before. And I also think, I also think that it conflicts in one respect, because we tell jurors, you know, lawyers, defense lawyers, prosecutors, and judges tell jurors, we want you to use your collective common sense. When you go back and evaluate the case, use your collective common sense. And then we give them this specific instruction that says, hey, this evidence was presented, but you can't consider it for this reason. You can only consider it for that reason, which really goes against your common sense. You know, you can't sort of tell me that I can only look at it for this reason, but not that reason. And so I've just never been a fan of, of prior bad act evidence, particularly, Vinny, when there isn't a prior conviction, when the information hasn't been truly tested in a court of law, either someone pleading guilty or, you know, being convicted of a crime. You know, just the accusations, you know, particularly those that are far removed. I've just never been a fan of prior bad act evidence uh, when it hasn't. But you get, you, Michael, you get to cross-examine them. It's not like they just go in there and tell their story. I mean, Bill Cosby and his attorneys can can go after these prior bad act witnesses and and, and attack their story um, and, and, and scrutinize it and pick it apart in front of the jury if, in fact, it's not true and tested. Yeah, but it kind of creates what, what, what the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania said is it creates a mini trial on a collateral issue. And it doesn't, I don't have a meaningful opportunity to investigate what they did. If I was actually trying that separate case, then I would ask questions, you know, did you have a drug test? You know, was there a rape kit done? Were there other things done? And I can't go back 30 years and get that information. So yeah, you get to cross-examine them, but you don't get the opportunity. You're, you're, you're basically trying a, a separate case on a collateral issue when you really need to be focused on the main issue at hand. And, you know, 
the, the more that happens to you, you know, in this case, five different women, you know, a, I just do not believe a juror is going to be able to separate it. A juror, a juror, even even a juror trying their hardest and being conscientious about their duty are going to have a hard time saying, you know, oh, he did it these other four times, but I don't believe he did it this time. You know, it just, it, they're, they're going to use it for propensity, even, even with the best jury instructions. Well, here's the problem for prosecutors, right? In, in a case like this where the defense is consent, all right, the act happened. So there's no forensic evidence that's going to prove one way or the other, right? That the forensic evidence doesn't doesn't exist here. It's not like he's saying we did not have that sort of uh, sexual contact. The question is, was it consensual or non-consensual? She's saying non-consensual. And what the defense is doing is attacking her credibility, right? And this is a he said, she said. But he's not going to say anything because he's not going to take the witness stand. So they're just going to attack her, attack her, attack her, right? So isn't one way for the jury to understand, well, is she telling the truth? Is she not telling the truth? Well, her story sounds a lot like this other story and this other story and this other story. So it really bolsters the credibility of her story, which is being attacked. I mean, like blistering like all on, full on mode in going after Andrea Constant. Yeah, I mean, Vinny, look, that, but that's exactly why you're not supposed to use it. <laughs> I mean, it's supposed to be, you know, if she gets up and tells a story and the jury believes it, you get your conviction, right? We're trying the specific case at hand. If someone else comes and says, well, yeah, her story sounds like her story, but her story wasn't investigated. It wasn't, it, there was no investigation by police officers. There was no consideration by a grand jury. There was no jury consideration. There was no charges filed. There was no, you know, accusations, you know, formal accusations. You know, you just have someone saying, oh, well, something similar happened to me, but it's never been truly tested through an investigatory process. And I think that is, I think not only is it unreliable, but it's, it's extremely prejudicial to a defendant. And, and, and part of the reason our justice system is set up in the way where the burden is on the prosecutor, where defendants have Fifth Amendment right, is because our system is set up in a way that it is better to let a guilty person go free than to convict an innocent person of a crime they didn't commit. That is just the way our justice system is set up. We would, we would rather have guilty people go free than convict an innocent person. And I think you just have to stand on your case. Right. You have to demonstrate that, my, you know, this person is believable. There's no incentive for them to lie. Uh, and, 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 and I just think that prior bad act evidence, particularly that that has not been vetted through an investigatory process and potentially a criminal conviction becomes, you know, unfairly prejudicial and, and, and sort of goes against why we have established rules of evidence. All right, so now let's go back to where we started, uh, to the point of this that I said was irrelevant, and let's bring it in, because everyone listening at home right now is saying, oh, okay, I, I understand those arguments, but but he did it. But he did it. Sure. These 19 other women. I mean, there, there are 14 <laughs> other women who didn't get to tell that story. Sure. And, you know, walks like a duck, quacks like a duck. It's a duck. It's the truth. I, we, we thought a trial was a search for the truth. Doesn't this get us to the truth of this case? So, so let's deal with that right now, Michael, because uh, ultimately that's what I always lean on. But I understand that we've got to have a system that is utterly fair because I don't. the last thing I want is an innocent person to, to go to prison. That is, that is when the system, that is total failure of the system. And, and that it, it's going to happen, unfortunately, because we're all human. 
but it has to be reduced uh, to, to its minimal, the minimal chance of that happening. But let's talk about the truth. Sure. Does the truth have anything to do with this now? What do you say to the person who's listening right now and say, what about the truth, Michael Sterling? Can you handle the truth? <laughs> but see, Vinny, that's part of why. I can handle the truth. I, I, you know, I, I believe, like you believe, trials are searched for the truth, which is why I think using unreliable evidence can become problematic. I mean, we've seen prosecutors, and, and this is no knock on prosecutors, that they're wonderful prosecutors who do great jobs, but we've seen prosecutors manipulate witnesses to get testimony that they want offer incentives to get testimony they want, even sometimes co sort of coerce witnesses in a way to get testimony they want. Uh, so, you know, we've got to be very careful, you know, that when we're offering evidence that it is in fact uh, uh, demonstrably true, right? Because, because that's why I say, you know, in prior bad acts and you're talking about a conviction, right? And that's a different story because that's sort of going through a vetting process that is uniquely different than just someone saying this happened to me. And, and it never went through a formal accusation. There was never a police report. It was never investigated. That, I mean, part of that process is why the prior bad act testimony is not as reliable when it hasn't gone through, you know, the, the you know, the court procedures, uh, the, 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 the reporting of it. Uh, and so, you know, that's why I, I believe it's not as reliable, meaning that it doesn't get us to a place as closer to the truth if it hasn't been properly vetted. And then you have defense attorneys trying cases on these collateral issues, and they really haven't had a meaningful opportunity to investigate these allegations because you're talking about 20 or 30 years ago. Michael, you're putting me in a bad spot here right now. <laughs> because you know I don't like Bill Cosby anymore. You know I think he's guilty. I, I think it was the right verdict. But I, I, I'm seeing your point, and this doesn't happen often on the podcast, and our producer will tell you that. Um, so this is a, a difficult position, and, and I understand exactly what you're saying because I'm looking at it uh, beyond Bill Cosby right now, and I'm looking at it, okay, if, how does this apply potentially down the road? So let, let's see if we can reach some sort of compromise here, Michael, so I don't lose this thing. I don't like to lose, <laughs> all right? Is there a number... Like, is there a fair number of prior bad act witnesses? Is, is, is there, because it was five, and everyone's like, five? But I'm like, that's oh, only five out of 19. But people say, five, that's a lot. Okay. Three. Can we agree to three? Vinny, I don't think it's the number. I would be. I'm negotiating. I would be okay, Vinny. I would be okay with 10. If the if the information had been properly vetted, you know, you know, I'll give you an example, Vinny, really quickly. If I have a case where I've got a client who who is you know is uh, accused of robbery and he's got a prior conviction for robbery and it was somewhat similar to what he did this time, I I, I understand that that's probably going to come in to potentially hurt my client. Uh, and even though I think the jurors are going to use it for propensity evidence to say that he did it again, you know, I understand that they can use it for the common design, plan, intent, all of, all of, all of the uh, permitted categories under uh, 404B. Uh, but I think just the accusation without some vetting, like there wasn't a police report or something, uh, uh, it, it's problematic. You know, it's problematic. How about how about this? All right, I'm I'm trying to work this out. <laughs> all right, I'm trying to get to, I'm trying to get. To, how about I mean a full on hearing where you know that's the vetting process. The vetting process is 
the judge has to be convinced to a certain extent before the trial and says, okay, this one, you know, where's your evidence? Where's your, your testimony? Where's the evidence from the other side? And you give both sides time to do it. So you have a bunch of mini trials in the form of hearings in front of the judge before the actual trial, which is kind of what they did. And I think that's probably a step in the right direction, but you would have to give, I think you'd have to give the defense attorneys, you know, um, you know, certain access to, 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 you know, information. I mean, I think, I think for it to be fair, defense attorneys would have to have a meaningful opportunity to investigate uh, the charges. So, so you think that, you think this was an abuse of discretion, which is, is really what the, the, the test is, yeah. and, you know, in front of the Supreme Court, that the judge abused his discretion in allowing these five other women to testify. And, and yeah, I do. I do think so, Vinny. And I don't I don't know what the difference was between the first trial and the second trial. I don't know why he changed his mind. Me too. And went from one. To me five. too. Me too. Me too. I think it was me too. I think the world changed. Oh, yeah. The world changed yeah. between the first trial and the second trial. But Michael Sterling, unbelievable, <laughs> unbelievable. He's, folks, you got to save me. I, I, I got to let you go, Michael, because if we stay on another five minutes with you, you know, I, I, I might put on a pinky ring and turn into a defense attorney. So we got to stop this right now. Michael Sterling, folks, great to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much. Thanks, Vinny. All right, folks. When we come back, I will tell you why, as a former prosecutor, I love criminal appeals. Renowned journalist Ashley Banfield takes you behind the scenes of the most compelling cases in history. This is the new chapter in true crime. Judgment with Ashley Banfield. All new episodes Sunday nights at 8 on Court TV. You all know I'm a former prosecutor, but I love criminal appeals. And there's a very simple reason why. If there's a criminal appeal... That means the prosecution won. That means the prosecution got a conviction. Because when prosecutors lose, there is no appeal. There, there, there is no second chance. There's no another bite at the apple for prosecutors. It's only criminal defendants and their defense attorneys who get a second chance in an appellate court because of a little thing called double jeopardy. It can only be tried once uh, for a crime in this country. So... When we're talking about criminal appeals, we're talking about a case where um, prosecutors won and the victims got a sense of justice, okay? And a jury agreed, you know, unanimously, beyond any and all reasonable doubt, to an incredible burden. So I, I feel like there's a sense of, of justice and, and completeness, and I understand the fact that most, if not all, criminal cases get appealed. They just do, because what on earth does a criminal defendant have to lose, Right. You know, in a murder case uh, and in a capital murder case, it's automatic. But in, in all these cases, they're going to they're going to file some sort of an appeal because they've got nothing else. They're locked up. They're not going anywhere. And, and they want a second chance at, at justice. And that's kind of what they live for. So so criminal appeals exist and always do exist. And when I was a prosecutor, you know, some of my cases went up on appeal. Some of them were a little close because I was an aggressive prosecutor in some of the things that I did. But uh, all of them withstood the challenges. Um the other reason I love criminal appeals, and, and Julie Grant mentioned this, when the defense wins, the only thing they win is a new trial, okay, where I've got the same evidence, but maybe the judge did something inappropriate or maybe there was some piece of evidence that I can't use the second time around, but there's going to be another trial. 
it's not like when a criminal defendant wins his appeal or her appeal, it's like, woo, we won the case and we're done. No, that means we're going back to the trial court and we're going to do it again. And, and generally speaking, prosecutors do better at retrials than criminal defend- defendants do. That's just the way it is. So chances are you get a new trial, you're going to lose again, which is another reason why, as a former prosecutor, I love criminal appeals. The other reason I, I, I appreciate them is because um, the scrutiny, the scrutiny that is done and, and the work that, and I, I, I attack them all the time, but I understand uh, we need them and, and they are the, the foundation of our system is, is the criminal defense bar and defense attorneys and, and criminal uh, defense appellate attorneys. What they do is they test our constitution. They test our system day in and day out to make sure it's as strong as possible so we avoid the unthinkable, which is the conviction of innocent people. We don't want that. And, and, and the safeguards that are set in place is this appellate process where issues and things come up during a trial that the defense uh, has an opportunity to have a fresh set of eyes, take a look at it, and make sure that it passes constitutional muster. And, and that's, that's, that's ultimately the, the way that our system is as good as it is. It's not perfect. It never will be perfect. It can't be perfect because humans are involved and we are not perfect. But it makes our system fairer and it makes our verdicts ultimately truer when issues are tested on appeal, when either the actions of the prosecutors or the decisions and rulings by a judge are put under a microscope. And they need to be. And I invite that, and I think it's important because sometimes our system may be doing something wrong, something unfair, something that could lead to a wrongful conviction. And as a prosecutor, one who ultimately wants to seek the truth and only the truth, not convictions, but the truth, we should want that type of scrutiny. And I invite it, and I think it's great for our system. So criminal appeals, when a lot of people are like, oh, Oh, he's going to appeal it. This is awful. No, this is good. This is good for our system. It's a cleansing of our system. So when things go wrong, it gets cleared up. And at the end of the day, if it's an issue in a case where someone is factually guilty, right, they actually committed the crime, like I believe Bill Cosby did, but let's say the judge's ruling is not constitutional, that he, he somehow abused his discretion and the trial was not fair, then we'll do it again. We will do it again. And we'll use the evidence that we need because we don't want prosecutors to be able to use arguments or evidence that could some way down the road lead to a wrongful conviction. That's the ultimate test here. And that's the way uh, Michael Sterling hit the nail on the head today. I I can't believe I'm quoting him now. This guy is in my head. Michael Sterling is in my head now. This is crazy. We've got to end this podcast, folks. We've got to end it. We've got to end it. Oh, unbelievable. All right. Well, thanks so much for listening. Um, Check the show notes because we'll have links to uh, lots of stories and discussions that we have about this uh, uh, case, which is uh, a huge case, really a huge, huge case. Uh, It has lots of implications because the ruling in this case could impact um, many of these sexual assault rape cases uh, down the road in the state of Pennsylvania and across the nation. And don't forget, I'm also on TV every night from 8 to 11. Watch my show. If you've got a digital antenna, Rescan it, folks. If you, have, if you haven't found Court TV on that antenna, please rescan it so you can find it. Um, that's it for now. I'm Vinny Politan. Appreciate your time. 
Have a great, great week. And as always, don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.